2: you yes you you are listening to Kicking the Kairiarchy we are your neighbourhood intersectional feminist podcast series and as you know every listen gets you one step closer to gold star feminist status which is basically challenging and questioning oppression all around you last episode we tackled living with HIV with Hosanna Michael and Shima we got some great feedback so please remember to leave us a review on iTunes as it really does help And of course, a massive shout out to our assistant producers, that's Amelia, Becky and Emma, who helped put this episode together. Now, we have some very exciting news, so please brace yourself. Make sure you're sitting comfortably, because... This is the penultimate episode of season two. I know, we're emotional too. (laughs) That means it is the second to last episode or that there's one more to go after this one. Then we are going to recharge and refresh, ready for an even more kick-ass season Season three. three. Who would have known we'd be going on to three seasons? Not us. So as ever, please enjoy this episode and the next one. And we'll be back in October with the same podcast, just different. And, even more exciting, a live launch event, seen as we all really enjoyed the last one that we did. So please do watch this space. Now, onto this month's episode. You may be thinking of travelling abroad and maybe you'd like to volunteer. Stop right... Oh, I see what you've done here, Sid. <laughs> Stop right there. Thank you very much. You need to think about volunteerism. tourism. da da Voluntourism is a $1.6 billion industry with agencies taking most of the cut to pair you with organisations working on the ground. You only have to go find the Barbie Saviour account on Instagram that parodies the volunteer photos surrounded by orphans in Africa to show how jarring it is. It's notable to want to make a difference in the world, but who really benefits? What skills do we really have as tourists to actually help? Are we the best people to be doing this? As ever, three great guests, one big topic. Let's go. I'm Samira
3: Savlani, and I'm a brown girl. And I'm a journalist and the social media director for Media Diversified. That basically means that in my journalism, I tend to write about the African continent, politics, economy, and more social stuff. And then with the Media Diversified stuff, it's more around racism, sexism, intersectionality, and all these things that uh, we need to be discussing about more and more in the mainstream. And it's all about trying to get out the views of people of colour into mainstream media and build a platform to publish writers of colour. So those are my two very different but very similar jobs.
2: We're talking about volunteerism this month. Mm -hmm.
3: What is it? So voluntourism is, and I, and I hate, you know, I'm going to apologise in advance for people that may get offended by the stereotypes, but it is your white saviour, I'm going off to Africa for my gap year, kind of people who perhaps do have the good intention of trying to go and quote-unquote help. Well, it's problematic on a whole load of levels, but what I've focused on in the past is when a lot of these voluntourists have had access to vulnerable groups, particularly children, and have gone on to sexually abuse them. So that's kind of where my work has focused. But that's that's your volunteerism in a nutshell, really. All those people who this summer, in the next few months, are going to go off to Africa and Asia to work with communities and villages, trying to build buildings that they have no idea how to build, they're not qualified for, but they have the privilege of being from overseas and people hate it, but being white, like, that
2: gets you in. Right. And so I know that a lot of white people go and work with children, but I was ne- I've was i never been aware of the fact that there's maybe quite, like, a cloud of abuse surrounding it. Mm-hmm. So can you firstly tell us about why you became interested in that or how you found out about that?
3: Well... I went off to Uganda. I got an internship there and then I was working on a refugee camp and I was there during Christmas. One weekend, three Canadian white people turned up to volunteer and I noticed that one of them, her university had sent her there for a year as part of her course and she came over to me and she said, you know, I've noticed that you mix with all the locals. I don't understand why. Like, I can work with them, but I need my expat love. And I was so taken aback by that because what I noticed was the locals weren't good enough for her to mix with, but she took photos upon photos upon photos with kids on the refugee camp you know, putting up that whole, on Facebook, that whole Angelina Jolie, Princess Diana hybrid kind of images. And first of all, I was horrified at her and her attitude and and the racism. They're not good enough to interact with, but they're good enough to make you look good as a humanitarian. What bothered me more was that if here in London, we saw a group of school kids playing in the playground, playing on the street, would any of us go up to them and take selfies with them and put them up on Facebook without permission? Would you go to, I don't know, kids being fostered are in the system, would you go to a home and take pictures with these children just because they don't have parents or carers and be able to put it up on social media with no consequences whatsoever? yet out there it was okay so that observation of mine was where I was like wow you know this is real this is something that we need to talk about because it means all lives aren't equal and then a few years later I heard about a case about an American guy Matthew Durham and he was volunteering in an orphanage in Nairobi and he'd been accused of sexually abusing kids and then that led me to two other similar cases uh, of two British men who'd dabbled in the same thing in East Africa. And one of them was a pilot with British Airways, so that had opened doors for him to be able to go work with vulnerable people. And I was just, you know, heartbroken at what these children have gone through because there is no protection mechanism for them just because they are orphans or vulnerable, even if not, you know, you can still, I was in Kenya a couple of months ago and I can still be in the car or walk down the street and see white people taking pictures with just kids playing on the street. They're not street kids, they're not vulnerable, they're just children having fun with their friends and I find that so problematic and the problematic part for me is white people who are out there on the voluntourism circuit. And I'm also aware that there are a lot of people of colour who are on that circuit, feel that it's okay to do this. You know, the whole humanitarians of Tinder, let's pull that way, that they feel that it's and And I just wonder why. So that's where it all began. And it was those cases about the sexual abuse which I wrote about where I really focused in on how
2: problematic this really is. I wonder how the children view the white people? Do we have any understanding of how the white people are portrayed? So my limited
3: experience, um, I just remember is being in Uganda and a friend there who, who was Ugandan, her daughter saying to her, oh, I love white people. I love white people. And her saying, why? And she said, because they give me food. They give me biscuits. And so I think, you know, maybe there is a little bit of the portrayal of they are... Above, they are saviors, they are foreigners, and maybe there's just no understanding on the part of the children that actually you say no when a stranger wants to take photos with you. I'm not putting the onus completely on the voluntarists, but at the same time, mm. I think to myself, well, we're the ones responsible for the kids. They may not know any better, but we should.
2: Why do you think it's become so popular? I'm assuming probably in the last 20 years, this voluntourism.
3: I think it's the image. If we go back to colonialism and, and the whole white saviour, you know, there's a big link to make. Some people would disagree, but this thing of, like, we need to go and teach these people how to be and how to live. And there is something about, look at me, I've gone off to Africa and I'm hugging brown babies... There is something in many of us that think that this will be something attractive. I also believe that there is a, call it subconscious or not, belief that these children are not at our level or these communities out on the African continent are not at our level. So it's on us to go and look after and reform and quote unquote help. I think that that's, what's really played into it that we just think is attractive that oh look I've gone off and helped out these babies
2: There is a thing where people put it on their Tinder profiles
3: Humanitarians mm. of Tinder yeah. Very sexy, very sexy and you know on that also you want to be like so why can't you just volunteer here mm. go take a holiday if you want to go out to Africa or Asia or whatever if you're that keen on it but then volunteer you know there are organisations here that could do with volunteers they really really could so what is it about wanting to go out there and do it
2: do you think that the people that go and do it are bad people
3: I don't think there's a question of good or bad but I think what needs to be questioned is their perception around race class And do they see themselves as being better? For me, that's where really the question lies, rather than are they good or bad. It's just not an industry I particularly agree with. I I really, especially in terms of the qualifications, for me, that is a big one. Um, We published a piece recently on Media Diversified and... What the lady wrote was when, say, African country nationals come to the UK the way they get questioned at the airport, if it was flipped the other way round and the immigration officials in African countries ask the same of British, European tourists or whatever, what would those questions be like? And one of them is, so you've come to build buildings, do you have the qualifications to build buildings? And do they? And so I, I almost feel like, OK, if you've got the qualifications and you have been vetted and you want to go out there and work, I mean, I hold my hands up. maybe problematic in some ways, may not be, but to just get on a plane and be able to go and do this and then take advantage and I do believe it's taking advantage by taking pictures of these kids and splashing it all over social media, I find that very problematic. And I've been criticised for my views. I have, I've had people say to me, you're taking it to the extreme, what's the problem? A lot of these you know, organisations that do take on volunteers actually need the help, maybe. But I guess, you know, maybe I've seen the more ugly side of it.
2: I think it's really interesting how every, a lot of the things we talk about, it, it always leads back to colonialism in some way. Are you able to expand a little bit more on that, you know, kind of the role of white privilege, the role of white European people being the white saviour?
3: Yeah, I mean, I feel like the hangover from colonialism can't be underestimated. And it exists in so many different spheres. So when we talk about colourism, for example, there are theories that will say, well, that's come from colonialism the idea that lighter means more beautiful. So in this case, yeah, I I think um, that white saviour and white privilege does give you access. You know, the red passport will give you access. The accent will give you access. And the fact that you are a white foreigner, you know, I have sat in restaurants in Nairobi, in Kampala, in Freetown. I've sat there and I've seen... White people get served before the locals that have been sat there for ages before. I have stood in a bank queue in Kampala and I've been in the middle of the queue. There have been three black Africans in front of me and a white person has walked in and he's been served first. It's there. It's very heavy. And I also feel that from the perspective of your voluntourists, I think it is something they've inherited from the whole colonialism thing that they can go out and help because these are backward countries and there's nothing wrong with wanting to help, but you can help here. And if you're going out there to help, look at whether you're qualified to help. Look at what you can bring to it and respect the people and your
2: surroundings. You mentioned that you've done some volunteering and also that that you're a brown girl. I wonder what it's like to be volunteering and to be a person of colour doing so. Well,
3: mine was not a volunteering thing. It was internship. But as a woman of colour, it's been exhausting doing that. You know, in the whole humanitarian aid field, being a brown person, and as a journalist as well, it's really difficult because you are not, You're white foreign journalists, so your white foreign journalists will not take you as one of theirs. You're not a local journalist, so you don't fit into that. And you're just stuck there in the middle. And that's how I feel most days. I wake up most days and I'm like, wow, you know, I don't want to be freelance anymore. I want to go full-time into journalism. But it's not happening and you can't help but think, well, it's part of this because I'm a brown girl? And in... In terms of being out there, in Uganda was where I did more of my work. You don't get the same treatment as your fellow white volunteers. On the refugee camp, for example, I did not get the kind of treatment that they got. I didn't. I was not treated that way. I think they didn't really know where to place me. And I think in terms of when you mentioned class... Most of the voluntourists that I've come across do have the money to be able to go out there. And I don't think that that can be put aside either because it makes you wonder that if you come from that much money, how much of an understanding do you really have on what the needs of people out there are? And I'm not saying that you have to have struggled to understand other people's struggles, but it kind of feels like, oh, I can buy myself the ability to go out and feel good about myself by helping. I've not met many gap year people who don't have access to money. Not many at all. And I have met a few non-white people going out. An Indian girl who actually went and taught English in India, but again, she was qualified to go and do it. It's a really murky subject and it's a controversial one because a lot of people don't like to hear views like mine for example they don't and I can understand why I really can because in essence a lot of people are like I just want to go and help Mm. and some of these places could do with the help but bringing it back to are you qualified and over here when you want to work they have to do the CRB check right there's a lot of places that will send out volunteers or Matthew Durham, for example, came through a church programme. That's how he ended up in Nairobi. They don't do vetting. They don't. And why are we OK with exposing kids there to people that have not had these checks, but we aren't over here?
2: Can you talk to us a little bit more about Matthew Durham because you raised an interesting point there about him coming through a church programme and not having a DBS check can you talk to us a little bit more about the details of that ok so vaguely he was in, he's from America and he
3: was at an orphanage in Nairobi and he ended up being accused of abusing kids and if I remember right he said that it was when he'd read his bible that the voices were telling him to do it And that he then had a lot of self-hate over it. It was very, very messy. And interesting how the media would often refer to him as a teenager because that tries to soften the blow a bit, right? Um, Yeah, I think if I remember right, he was in his late teens, came through a church program. Should he have not had the checks? I don't know what the American version is. I'm keen to go as far as psychological assessment before you go out there... Before Helen Fielding became famous with Bridget Jones, she wrote a book called Cause Celeb. I highly recommend everyone reads it. And on the opening page, so it's set in between London and a refugee camp in Ethiopia. On the opening page, one of the characters is on, on the refugee camp and she, her colleague comes out and she says he's wearing a T-shirt on which it says, missionary, mercenary, misfit, broken heart which are you and it comes back to that thing of why do we go off to Africa missionary to help mercenary to make some money misfit because you don't fit in here or are you running away from a broken heart now if you fall into especially those last of those two categories you're just running away from your problems and as noble as it is to throw yourself into working and helping to forget your problems Sometimes those problems are of a deeper level than just, I got dumped. And so I think when it comes to working with kids, you should at first be given a psychological assessment, especially if you're flying out overseas, to work in what are sometimes
2: quite harrowing conditions. Have you found out about if there's anything being done to try and prevent this from happening? Every time
3: I ask questions, I don't tend to get responses someone has once said to me look so you're a little orphanage somewhere in kenya for example you could do with volunteers you could do with the help so if that's going to be on offer you're going to take it especially because you don't have to pay and even with you know when the matthew durham case happened so he's been tried in the states but my big question was what Kenya doing about it? What's the Kenyan government doing about it? And you just don't get responses. You don't get told much. There was a British man, not the airline pilot, another one, Simon Harris, I think his name was, for years on end had apparently, he'd been going back and forth between uh, the UK and Kenya, been accused of abusing kids out there, and he'd been on the sex offenders list here. Yet yeah, he was OK to go off to Kenya, be there. And you've got to ask the questions, like, putting aside everything else, where is the government? Where are the governments, not just the UK government, but the Kenyan government, wherever these things happen? And, you know, I know there are a couple of countries who want to crack down on foreign adoptions, and and I'm definitely in favour of that as well. But I think it's time to take it a step further and really look into this area. But, again, class comes into it. Sometimes you do wonder, is it because these kids are often orphans that they just don't matter as much. It's a horrible way to say it but can't really come up with other answers.
2: What can we do to be better allies? To challenge voluntourism but also for the young people?
3: Well again if we go into challenge voluntourism a lot of people will say, but do we have to get rid of the whole thing altogether? I feel like if you want to go out there and do these things, get qualifications. Try and find programmes which do insist on you having cheques. I don't know of any, but I know they are out there. Go with the correct intention. Like, what are you really going out there to do? And also, when you are out there, think twice around the photographs. Really think twice. You're basically taking a picture of yourself with kids who are pretty much strangers So, my big one is if you are going to go out there and travel and volunteer, okay, but really think twice and ask yourself would this behavior be okay if I was doing it back in the UK? Who are these children? Do they deserve protection? And if someone is dating you because you're on Humanitarians of Tinder, Get off. Like, really? Come on now. I mean, I would not date anyone who had a profile picked up on Humanitarians on tin. Oh, God, no. No, 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 no. Get yourself off that app, guys. It's,
2: it's not the way. Like, find the light, please. Just so that Alice's, I guess, have a little bit of closure in terms of Matthew Durham, what was the result of his trial? He has
3: been sentenced. I mean, they tried to get him off in a variety of ways, but he has been sentenced. One of the British men ended up committing suicide before he was sentenced. That was the airline pilot. You know, they do end up getting caught, but for everyone that isn't caught, there's so many that aren't. When I was in Kenya and I asked people about it, and they said, look, when these voluntarists come, they drink in the bars, they eat in the restaurants, they shop, they spend... It's helpful for the economy, you know. They go do the tourist part. So I see, I see where there is a benefit to any particular host country of having these people around. It's just at what
2: cost sometimes. There always seems to be an abuse of power. If somebody can abuse the power, it seems like they probably will.
3: Mm, I agree. I do, I think so. And again, it's not to say that they're all out there sexually abusing children, but it just seems like when you know you can do it, you will. In the same way, when you know that you can take a cute little picture with cute little brown babies, you will. Because
2: why not? It makes me feel like that the only reason people will do the right thing, or not necessarily the right thing, but the only reason why people won't abuse their power isn't because they don't want to abuse it but it's because they'll get caught yeah
3: yeah and i think that's that's a big one i really really do think that's a big one and in the same way by the same token when you look at why people go out there you also want to ask are they really going out there to help how how altruistic are we really as a human race and do we have to be i don't know but definitely it makes me feel like what is the intention behind you doing the right thing and what is the intention overall behind you going out and being
2: a voluntourist yeah how can we our listeners and i find out more about you and your work and things like that um i'm on twitter and it's at samira
3: savlani so that's s-a-m-i-r-a-s-a-w-l-a-n-i And if you want to follow Media Diversified, who I do the social media for, and my voluntourist piece was published by them, that is at Writers of Colour. And the colour is the British spelling, C-O-L-O-U-R. And, yeah, you can drop me an email, samira at mediadiversified.org. And if you have any questions about this stuff or you don't agree, get in touch. You know, let's
2: talk. So a massive thank you to Samira for talking to us about the abuse of power in particular that can come into play when volunteering with orphanages abroad when there are no checks at all, like GPS checks. And that was quite hard to listen to. Next up is Pippa.
1: I'm Pippa Biddle. I'm white, cis, non-disabled. I am a freelance writer based in New York. And I write a lot about privilege and identity and how those privileges that I have and that people like me have play out as they engage with communities outside of their own.
2: Can you tell us what are your experiences or what were your experiences of volunteering?
1: So I started volunteering within my own community quite young, but I didn't volunteer outside of my own community until 2009. i just finished my junior year of high school And I traveled to Tanzania first as part of a volunteerism trip that my school coordinated. And the goal that we were given was to build a library and then also to go on safari. And that was an interesting experience because it was both deeply formative of who I am now and also profoundly problematic. And that creates a very interesting tension when something that Builds you into who you are is also destructive of a place that you thought you were helping. And that same summer, I also started working in the Dominican Republic in a similarly volunteeristic capacity, but a very different type of program where I was working at a summer camp for HIV positive children. That is run out of a clinic in the DR that is staffed by Dominicans, the head of the camp is Dominican, which showed me sort of a different angle of what voluntourism can look like outside of the group trip in VEDA orphanage setting, rather in a more immersive educational environment. And that camp I was involved with for a number of years, and I'm still a donor to now.
2: Now, did you realize like at the time, for example, like when you were at school, when you were going on that trip, did you realize it as voluntourism at the time?
1: I didn't know the word voluntourism existed until 2014, and I thought that I invented it. Mm -hmm. So I wrote this article, an essay called The Problem with Little White Girls, Why I Stopped Being a Voluntourist, and I was trying to come up with a title for it. And I was like, oh, volunteer, tourist, it's the perfect portmanteau, and sort of Googled to confirm that I was in fact the inventor and realized that I was in no way the inventor, and it was a term that had been used for quite a long time. I'm sure that I'd seen it before, because the reality of language is that there's many terms that we interact with on a daily basis that we just don't register until they become immediately um, necessary for our experience. And for me, that word became very, very necessary because it gave me the vocabulary I needed to process things that I'd done, um, which really sort of opened the gates (laughs) to to talking about it and being engaged in the space.
2: So this was something that you were aware of, that you were reflecting back on your experiences. And at what point did you realize that these kind of trips were kind of voluntaristic? I guess?
1: Yeah, I think that even when I didn't have the vocabulary word voluntarism, I knew pretty quickly what I was doing. And I knew that me being a tourist was the primary function I was playing Anytime you travel somewhere outside of your own community, you're a tourist. I traveled a lot. Before I volunteered, I was very lucky that my parents prioritized travel for us and that was a choice they could make. It wasn't novel for me to go somewhere new. Um, What was novel was this concept that I was supposed to be helping in a physical way when I was there. And I think that that was really what I found slightly baffling was the realization that the. Thing I was supposed to do while I was there was something I was totally unqualified for but I would still get pat on the back for doing it because I had this sort of overarching volunteer label um, and I think that that's something I realized quite quickly but I just didn't know how to talk about.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about what uh, you were doing in the first place you volunteered in and um, yeah how do you know that now that is volunteerism?
1: Yeah absolutely so I mean what happened was that we went over, it was a group of women, I went to an all-girls school, and a couple of trustees and a couple of educators, and went to an orphanage that was for older girls in Tanzania that was also a accredited school, and the idea was that we would build a building there for books, was what we were told at the time, was that they needed a library in order to get a higher level of accreditation so that they could offer better classes and services to their students. And none of us had any training in construction, especially not uh, construction that involved bricklaying. And we also arrived with duffel bags full of calculators and hair ties. And it really was a bit of a farce from the get-go because you realize that you're there to do physical labor you don't know how to do. You've brought hair ties to an orphanage where in Tanzania, um, women under university level in school have to keep their heads shaved. We brought calculators, but they're actually not allowed to use calculators. And so, sort of every single point, we've done some. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. brought it home for me and what really became the nexus point for my analysis of volunteerism and my experiences within the space was when i realized that the workmen who were helping us on the work site were actually taking apart our work and redoing it when we weren't there so that we wouldn't know that they were doing it and we'd been curious as to why despite us seeing them working, we were making so little progress on the structure. I mean, it took many years for it to be finished and I don't believe it was only another group from my school went the next year and I believe that other groups also worked on this project. When I saw them taking apart our work and redoing it, it was just this sort of final confirmation that we had no business saying that we were there to help them. We hadn't done the basic research to know what they needed We didn't have the basic skills that all these local men had where they could have been hired to do this job, but instead we were standing there sort of putzing through something that they can do with their eyes closed. And in fact, can only do so poorly with our eyes open that they have to redo it. And then we left and went on a safari. And then they danced and said thank you to us as we drove away. And it was profoundly performative for something that had been, in my mind, a very obvious failure. It made no sense. Um, And it was this baffling moment of, why in the world am I here if everything that I was told I could bring them, I failed at? It took me a while to accept that what I'd seen and what I'd experienced was the truth because I both didn't want it to be but also because memory has that, that fallible nature to it. And it's been so affirming to hear other people's stories that, while terrible and they shouldn't be happening, and we need to do a better job to make sure that we are more responsible travelers who aren't going in and doing work that is futile, but to know that my experience was not entirely unique and from another planet, that it's part of this greater trend that we can sort of come together and commiserate and then find something that we can do differently.
2: Mm. It's it's difficult to have those conversations with other white people about acknowledging privilege and about holding your hands up and going, do you know what? Like that was problematic and I was probably in the wrong there. So it's refreshing talking to you and having these conversations. But how have you navigated that? Because, you know, I'm assuming that you've probably traveled in like-minded circles and traveled with people who have also done very similar things and maybe had uncomfortable conversations about it. Like, how have you navigated those?
1: I have had a number of very uncomfortable conversations with friends where I have to tell them that I don't believe in something they've done and that I am ideologically opposed to a certain way that they decide to treat the world. I think that we all need to do a better job of recognizing privilege is both physical and internalized. And I think that what I say that upsets people the most are the physical aspects, because being white is not something you choose at birth, but it's something you have. And it's an asset that you get to carry with you for your entire life that you didn't earn, but that deeply impacts the way in which you engage with the world and the way the world engages with you. And I think that to deny that and not engage on that would be criminal. And I think every person is figuring, it's never gonna be figured out. We're not gonna Mm -hmm. understand our role as people of privilege in society. And if we ever think we do, that's just expressing another privilege. <laughs> mm. And so I think the best thing that I, that I can do and what I ask other people to do is to constantly ask questions and to defer to those with the experiences we want to learn from, which can be uncomfortable because, for example, I speak at a lot of schools about my experiences with voluntourism and about how we need to better support communities by going in as tourists rather than as volunteers. And there's a very fair question of who am I to be on that stage, because shouldn't someone of color from those communities be on that stage, and that's a really good question. I don't like the term like woke, mm. because the moment you think that you're aware is when you're really screwed. And so I just I ask a lot of questions, I have a lot of really uncomfortable conversations, I tell people how I feel. I try to do it in a way that causes them to want to engage more rather than to shut down. Um, but I don't hold back when it's saying how I feel. And sometimes that means being at a dinner party where you say you write about volunteerism and someone tries to tell you about their amazing experience in Kenya. And you have to listen very quietly and nod and then afterwards say, I disagree with everything you've done. And that gets a lot of laughs till they realize you're serious.
2: Yeah. So- How does privilege play a role in voluntourism?
1: So privilege concept, like people travel abroad to help somewhere else, that's sort of inherently quite obviously you could think, okay, there's something about privilege in there. But if you actually break it down, first off, who can travel outside of their community? I think it's important to differentiate. Voluntourism doesn't have to be outside of your country. There are many ways to be voluntarist within your own country. Um, The United States is especially uh, malleable to that because of the diversity of regions we have. And it's so absurdly large that someone from New York City can go down to the deep South and feel like they're in a totally different world. So the ability to leave your community to travel is inherently privileged. You either have the money to do it or you can raise money from your community to help another community, which it is a privilege to live in a community where people have enough money, they can give it away to you to get nothing back. When you look at the statistics from the US for who can do that, we have our census and then part of the census that a few tens of thousands of people take is a volunteering supplement. And so it's from that, that we have some pretty good detailed data on who volunteers specifically abroad, so specifically out of the country. And they are well-off, mobile, well-educated, or will have an access to higher education. And in the U.S., they're overwhelmingly white. And when the majority of people taking part in an activity have check all the boxes that say, this is a person who has privilege in our society that means that the activity they're taking part in is in and of itself a expression of privilege.
2: Do you think then by virtue of that, that volunteerism is a colonialist practice?
1: So I don't think it's by virtue of it being something done by people who have privilege that it's a colonialist practice. I think it's by virtue of its very invention. So, voluntourism and short-term mission trips, which are religious, do fall into voluntourism. But it's important to sort of remind people they do because they often forget. Um, they both grew out of the Victorian era and the Industrial Revolution. People really couldn't travel in mass, and there wasn't the middle class that could travel um, until the Industrial Revolution and the Victorian era. Came along with this uh, f- development of a philanthropic impulse, which was really the first time that people who were not like ennobled wanted to give back to people they didn't know. So there was philanthropy prior to the Industrial Revolution, but it was much more localized. So you gave to your own church, you gave to your own community, and there was a sense of built in reciprocity. With the Industrial Revolution and the sort of crushing into cities, there was greater anonymity. There was greater visibility of poverty. There was this increased desire to do something to alleviate it, and also an increased ability to leave your own community to see the world. And so those two things sort of crashed together. And a number of really successful businessmen, uh, including Thomas Cook, which is still a very, very successful travel company, built on that and created travel opportunities that gave people the opportunity to go, for example, to Palestine and travel around and visit the holy cities, but also to visit orphanages. And so the reason they were able to do that at all was because colonialism was established in places like Palestine, India. There were European hotels, roads, foods they'd find familiar. It was accessible enough, yet still exotic. And the colonial powers fell, but the practice has continued, and it is as rooted in the notion that we have the right to go somewhere and to tell them how to live as colonialism was and as this practice was when it first started. And so I think that we really need to remember to see it as a continuation of something that began during colonialism, not as some invention that we came up with today that harks back to colonialism. Mm -hmm.
2: I know that when we think about international work now, we have to be so careful about you know, are we going over there to tell them what to do and what we think is best? Or actually, are we going to go listen, help, support, if and where possible, and and if that's our role at all? So I wanted to ask you, how has this, how has voluntourism shaped the way that you work now? Because you've still got that relationship with that organisation in the Dominican Republic. Tell us about that.
1: One of the reasons that I'm so interested in the history is that I've been working on a book-length project on voluntourism for the past four years that hopefully someday will be finished. Um, that really forced me to dive into the history of it. This is a subject that I never thought when I wrote that first piece would carry with me for this long. And it's directed a lot of my life in how I engage with the world and how my family engages with me too. It's, It's very interesting. So I grew up traveling a lot and I never really thought about how I was traveling when I wasn't even a volunteer until I really started diving into this community. And it has drastically changed the way that I live. Um, As someone who loves to travel, I don't stay in big resorts unless I can prove that they're locally owned and have good employment practices. I don't engage in a lot of travel and tourism practices that many people would see as normal. And that's been an adventure for me. And that's really reshaped the way that I see the world and the stories I want to tell as a writer because it's shown me so much more than I was ever learning from being in a hotel. Um, I also think that the only reason I'm a writer now and that that's my profession is because I engaged in this conversation. It's because I wrote one piece that happened to resonate with people that I didn't think anyone would read when I first wrote it. I had no intention of anyone reading it, it was truly just a rant. and People read it and it opened up a lot of doors and it opened up a lot of opportunities and I've been in documentaries and spoken at conferences and spoken at universities and have to give myself a, a sort of kick in the butt every now and then to remind myself that the only reason that I have any of it, um, literally any of my career, is because I did something stupid when I was 16. And uh, if that's not privilege, I don't know what is, because when I do something stupid at 16, it gives me a career. But I think that that's that's been really interesting, is this conversation has shaped and directed everything I have done since that point. Whether what I am doing explicitly engages with the word voluntarism or not, um, it changes how I tell stories how I visit places, how I communicate with people and how I ask other people to mm. do those things as well. And
2: specifically your work with the Dominican Republic. I remember reading that you you decided that you shouldn't necessarily be the person there to help. It doesn't mean that you have to be there on the ground. It's more about supporting those people that are already there um, more locally. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so I love the DR. To me, it's a country that I feel quite at home in, which is one of the reasons why I find it very wonderful. Um, There's a way to engage with a nation and with a people that is both fulfilling for you and helpful for them. And what I've learned is that my way of engaging that can be fulfilling for me and helpful for them is to support the things that I find to be important and to pull back from the things that I don't need to be at. So the summer camp, for example, for HIV-positive children still operates. Um My mom is deeply involved as well and buys their craft supplies every year and makes sure that it happens. Um, we are not so well off as to pay for an entire summer camp, but we remain engaged and make sure that it's something that isn't lost as an asset to the community. I mean, it's been amazing to see, I remember a couple of years ago one young woman was the first young woman who'd been a camper to become a counselor. and just the power that provides to a community when, these children were born with a death sentence. And now, because of where medicine has gone, they will be able to get married or choose not to get married or have children or choose not to have children. And if they choose to have children, they can have children that are HIV negative without endangering their partner. Mm. And they can live a normal life expectancy and have no one know what's in their blood. And that's, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um and I it can hat like I don't have to have anything to do with it where I can be is, for example, there's this community I love called Cabaret Day on the north coast, and when I go there, making sure that the restaurants I eat at are the restaurants that are owned by locals. Um, I stay at places that are typically Airbnbs owned by locals. Um, I really try to engage in that way with the community and uh also with supporting those local businesses so that they're able to grow and they're able to develop and they're able to compete with the international market.
2: Mm -hmm. We have one final question and that is how can we find out about your work? How can we support you? How can our listeners support you? The platform is yours.
1: So um, the best place to find out about what I'm up to is on my website. It's PippaBiddle.com. or I'm on Twitter and Instagram at at I am currently again, working on a book length project about volunteerism, which uh, hopefully will be done at some point in the next couple of years. But if anyone's interested in that, they can reach out to me. Um, if they have stories they wanna share, I love to hear them. I answer every email I get. Um, Other than that, I just ask people to be thoughtful when they travel, to travel uh, with a student's mind rather than a volunteer's mind, and to immerse themselves in the places they go, because being able to travel if you have that opportunity is one of the greatest opportunities for understanding and for learning and for connection, but we need to do it in a way that fosters that rather than doing it in a way that destroys that and by going in and accepting that you know nothing and can offer nothing except for your ear and your wallet you're going to do a lot more good than if you go in presuming to be able to change the world.
2: That was Pippa who had a really refreshing take on acknowledging own privilege and also problematic behaviour that we all might have taken a part in. We can learn a lot from that I think.
0: Next we meet Rafia. So my name is Rafia Zakaria and I am an author and columnist at DAWN which is Pakistan's largest newspaper. I also write a column of The Bachelor which is out of New York and you know many other many other publications. In the past I've served as on the board of Amnesty International USA and have been involved in various activist efforts on women, South Asian women, Muslim Americans, Pakistani Americans. And Pakistanis themselves so yeah that's me in a nutshell I'm amazing thank you so much
2: Rafia we contacted you because you wrote an article called the white tourists burden so could you give us a little synopsis or a breakdown or you know kind of answer the question of what is the white tourists burden
0: yeah and first of all I want to thank you guys for doing a show on this this is a perfect time for doing it because a lot of people are planning their summer holidays or are on their summer holidays and so it's an opportune time to be talking about this issue. The wall on tourism at its heart relies on the central practice of travelers, usually from the West, going to less developed countries and then either as part of their larger vacation or as their entire vacation doing things like building schools or helping dig the chains or most problematically working in orphanages and that's kind of the the general way that people go about it there are by now literally hundreds and hundreds of organizations that are providing this kind of services these vacations that double as do-gooders type activities. At the heart of it of course are two things. First is that in the West there are very careful and compelling critiques of consumerism. And so travel and experience is imagined as a non consumptive experience. So that's number one. And number two is as they serve as a form of virtue signaling. Where if I went to Haiti and built a school there and I can post a lot of those pictures on my Instagram, and that shows me as a better person than you. The whole volunteerism structure is constructed to make the volunteer, a person usually from the West, feel good about it. And so the failed volunteerism projects actually expose that. You know, in another example, you have who volunteer in Nepalese orphanages or, or orphanages in Vietnam and what was happening in these places was that people were on purpose hiring their kids out to pretend to be orphans because they knew that that is a tourist draw for these organizations you know you can go to Bali and relax on the beach for a couple of days and then you know you can go hug these kids and take a lot of pictures for a couple of hours during your week of R&R and that gives you something to take home in that I'm a good traveler. This is not just of course that their projects and they don't work so there's empty homes and schools and things like that but it's also the impact on the local labor market and in the case of orphanages obviously on these children. So when you take even 30 college students to Ghana and they pit latrines and they're doing this very unskilled labor for free then you're displacing local someone over there who is doing that work for money so now you've created a problem in terms of the local labor market in that region it's these examples this proliferation of the idea that Just because you're Western, you can go into these societies and get this instant, what I call like instant shot of virtue, Uh, you know, where I'm a good person because I just went there and I did this for a few hours or a few days and I've saved the world. You mentioned
2: that one of the most problematic things that people do is work with children and work with orphanages. Why is that so problematic?
0: Well, I mean, it's problematic, number one. You would never, in the UK or in the United States, have access to someone's children. You can't just walk into a nursery school or or a daycare and say, I want to play with these kids and hug them and hang out with them and be their caregiver and also i'd like to take pictures of them it just wouldn't happen but just because kids are in a center in Kathmandu, it doesn't mean that those concerns aren't there so in the worst case scenarios of course you've got situations in which people who have criminal intent are going into these orphanages there's no background check there's no anything. I mean, you. It, it's essentially using these children as this cute, voluntourist attraction which exists and which anybody who makes a small donation can go in there and be around these kids. In some cases that have been written about, there have been instances of people being given tremendous responsibility. You know, being allowed to sleep with these children and eat with these children without literally, you know, no investigation into their backgrounds, into whether they're a pedophile or they have some other sort of criminal intent. So that's, you know, the most obvious danger. But then there are, like I said, the other dangers of you have small children who develop attachments to these caregivers, you know, who show up for a week or two weeks and take care of them, and then they disappear forever, and, and that happens repeatedly. So a situation where you're really sort of playing fast and loose with the psychological health and the emotional health of these children, and not affording them the same care that you would essentially afford a white child in the West. So that's number two, and then finally, it's just the fact that when there is this external um kind of influx of money it 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 creates a market and that's what happened in a lot of these places is that you know parents felt okay well it's like i mean there was a demand for orphanages and then they had to fill up these orphanages and and tell the story that these kids were abandoned when, in fact, what parents were being forced to do for economic reasons is rent their children out, to these orphanages, where they pretended, I mean, they are destitute on a certain level, of course, to have to do that, but that they had no one. I mean, this that kind of idea that this child has no one and I can give this child love had to be created artificially for the Western tourists.
2: Why do people travel to solve problems abroad whilst ignoring problems in their own communities?
0: Well, I think that this do-gooder, I want to change the world, I want to save the world mentality, has been promoted in the West as sometimes even an antidote to capitalism. So that, yeah, I spent all my time being a stockbroker, but, and I have like a lot of money, but I'm gonna go do this for a month and find myself. And that's sort of socially constructed as this selfless act. When in fact, it's not selfless and you are getting something out of it. You know, you get this sort of virtue signaling, which says this person went and they did this and oh my God, aren't they a saint for doing it. And the more harsh the conditions, the more boasting rights you get. What would be most useful is if you took all the money that it's going to take to take you over there and just write a check and send it to that. Earth. It's going to be less polluting because jet fuel is like the number one pollutant that in terms of our carbon footprint. And second, you're going to give autonomy to the people you want to help to decide how that money is used. But of course, very few people are going to do that because the other side of it comes from sort of our development discourse, and that is that we know best what the world needs. And we're not going to give the poor peasants in India the right to figure out how they want to spend a certain amount of money. We want to tell them how to spend it, or rather, we want to spend it for them. It's a literal high that people get when they go and they see poverty and they endure it to some extent. Are there any wider repercussions of this? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question because there are tremendous wider repercussions. I mean, what people are not willing to acknowledge is that even the ability to travel is something that, you know, is is widely only available to a Westerners. So Westerners travel to do this kind of thing Voluntourism, leisure, see the world, uh, find yourself, and uh, people from the global south travel for work. But just as voluntourist opportunities are being expanded, the ability for labor from these countries to move and travel are being utterly shut down. So you have migrants drowning off the coast of Italy and stranded ships, and here, in the United States, you have people dying at the southern border and children being taken. I mean, all of that is, that is travel too. People don't recognize that. They don't recognize that if you stand up for volunteerism and your personal right to travel and you know have all these countries available to you as your sort of existential playground, you also have a moral duty To support the right of people from those countries to to migrate and to go to places where there are opportunities where they're not starving so you know the succession of that part of travel from this conversation like the one we're having is a huge problem and it has tremendous repercussions I would just say that everybody who's traveling if you really want to do good and help admit migrants and immigrants and protect their rights, and advocate for them, because they too are traveling. So I think that 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 is a, the biggest repercussion. The other, of course, is people need to understand that travel, just like anything else is a consumptive experience, even if you don't shop, which is how people narrowly construct consumption, just in the amount of jet fuel that's expended every time people even just you know, from uh the UK come to the US or anywhere, any any sort of long haul flight, uh, emits huge amounts of carbon gases. But we you know, we want to collect the cans and we want to uh not use plastic and and that's great too. But that is minuscule com you know, compared to what flying does your carbon footprint. So you have to consider all of these aspects, you're not bathed in absolution and the people that you use as props for virtue signaling, right? So if I had one ask for your listeners, it would be that do not take pictures with children and other people in foreign countries without their consent. You would never do that in your own country. So you cannot do it in another country. And just because they're poor does not mean that you don't have to ask and that you don't have to explain.
2: Thank you so much, Rafia, for for coming on the podcast and for for talking to us about Voluntourism. How can our listeners find out more about you?
0: I write for a number of different places. You can follow my writing at The Baffler. I'm a columnist. I write a column called Alienated. And you can also follow my writing at Dawn. My uh, column comes out every Wednesday. And I regularly, in both places, talk about these issues and the impact that they've had. You can follow me on Twitter at Rafia Zakaria. And that, my friends, that episode
2: was Voluntourism. As ever, please let us know what you thought. Maybe you've changed your volunteering plans because of it. Are you wrestling with your white guilt? Then good. That means that we did something here today and all of us together with this episode. And let's start by making it right. Go volunteer, but check who you're really there to help. Are you really the best placed person to deliver that aid? How else can you help? Ask yourself, is there anything more local that you could do to help? As ever, thank you to our three guests who helped make this podcast episode possible. And our three assistant producers Amelia, Becky and Emma. Tell us what you thought of the episode. You can find us on Facebook, Kicking the Karaoke. You can find us on Twitter at Kick And online, check out kickingthekarachi.org. Remember, this is the second to last episode. So we'll see you next month, but not the one after that. Yay! Boom! That was a high five. Just in case you couldn't hear that.